Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, Batman Ranking Podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on? Oh, Matt, I have wasted entirely too much time on something that will give us content, but too much content in a way that's not going to serve this episode but i did it anyway because my entire goal here is just to just to fuck with whatever you have planned so what i did was i took our top 64 stories as of last week and i put them in a uh, an ncaa style march madness bracket and uh i i titled it uh march bat madness and I just wanted to see what would happen if we properly seeded them. Uh, so stories, you know, one to four got a one seed in the different regions and stories two to eight got a two seed, et cetera. It's or excuse uh, stories five through eight uh, got a two seed, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think I got some, we got some interesting results here and I think the uh, whatever happened to the Cape Crusader bracket, that that one's basically going to go chalk. I didn't see any upsets there. I didn't see any matchups that fascinated me. But if I had to pick a Cinderella team, like maybe not maybe not one that's going to go for a run because I think that's a different discussion. But the team, the book that has the best chance to pull the upset, the biggest upset in the first round, I think is in our first bracket, our year one bracket, Dark Knight returns as a two seed up against Venom as a 15 seed. I that's a that's a tricky matchup. And um if I was gonna bet and looking for an upset, I'm I'm gonna go with Venom there. Of course, the way that we record these, we are recording this at the beginning of March. And this episode won't go up until the end of March. So the question is, do we want to possibly put this up on Twitter? Do we want we could. to see what the 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 fans might might say? I mean, Lord knows that would drive interest. And you know, I I, I could put this sucker up, and you might all be hearing about this weeks after it went up, but it would be interesting. You know, we, we put up the bracket and then put up you know, a matchup every day or two and see what happens. That's an interesting one. I think one, and it's, it's not, it's not one where I think there'd be an upset, but I found it fascinating that you've got something like new frontier up against uh, the Tim sale issue of solo, both of which are not really Batman comics and they are matched up on that bracket. Just yeah, by I, the way it fell. I did a, a straight one to 64 seating. So the uh, I didn't I didn't play around as the NCAA committee might in sending uh, different uh, books as they were to different brackets. I think our most vulnerable one seed, which makes sense as it's uh, it's fourth on the list, Cold Days, because it's uh, it's up against Long Halloween in the bottom half of its region, oh. and then uh, a book that might make a run 
against Cold Days, Nightfall as a five seed against Kingdom Come. I uh, I don't like that matchup for Kingdom Come. And, and we're sitting here and we're talking as if we don't have a third person here. Uh, so we have sent the bracket over to our guest for the night, our good friend Josh Wheel, who is back. Uh, how's it going, Josh? Good, good. I'm glad to be back. Man, I, I can't get over Cold Days versus JLA New World Order in the first round. That's like one of those watching, uh, and it's not even fair to say like, you know, Florida Gulf Coast or something, you know, one of these schools that you know is going to cause trouble. Because that opening arc of JLA by Morrison and Porter is just fucking classic. And there's those two are such different stories. You've got New World Order, which is big and widescreen and superhero, and Cold Days, which is just so quiet and so intimate and so about the internal life of Bruce Wayne. It's such two unlikely stories. Now, if I had to pick a double digit seed to advance in the first round. I think it's Batman and Robin and Howard as a 14 against Court of Owls. There's a joy in Batman, Robin and Howard that would help it possibly move, move ahead of Court of Owls. There yeah. you go. Batman, Robin and Howard is your um, Florida Gulf Coast. <laughs> the, the cold days JLA New World Order is more like one of those years when Kentucky's slumming it and they're, they're like a 14 seed. And you're like, geez, like some poor three seed has to pay. Like, that's not even fair that a three seed has to play them in the first round. Yeah, and I think as Will's point out, the criteria here isn't best. It's most enjoyable, which is where is the strong quality of Court of Owls, when it comes to something you just sit back and sort of love for what it is, Batman and Robin and Howard has, has power in that. Yeah, it's it's the classic question that sometimes we fall back on. Which one of these things do you want to read right now? But we will see about putting that up and maybe we will report back in another couple of episodes about how it came out. We're not here just to sit around and discuss the bracket for tonight. Nope, because Josh is back. Josh has made his pick as our dick grayson level patreon backer and remember everyone you can join us over at uh, patreon.com slash bat chat with matt and will and if you give it 25 dollars a month for three months you can come on the show with picks of your own josh being our loyal dick grayson level backer right now is back with three stories that he picked and this time he went with line-wide crossovers Three of the big line-wide crossovers of the 90s. These aren't, in general, those Batman-heavy stories, but we've thrown in some of the crossovers and such to give it a little more Batman. But it's, it's very interesting, and I think we'll get into it as we discuss them more, but I think these three stories give very different examples of how that line-wide crossover works. It is wild rereading these in 2023 and seeing a time when dc wasn't just clubbing you over the head with batman on line-wide crossovers when they were really going deep into the bench like blue devil has more pages across these than 
than Batman does. And I Guy mean, Gardner, Guy Gardner is all over the place. Guy, yes. And like, we're in an era now where people are like, hey, DC, you know, you have a lot of you have a lot of characters. You could use them all in your line wide. And they're like, no, or we could just make a Batman version of every character and that'll be the line wide. And then then we'll do it again next year. I will say that uh, Batman has more of a presence than the Pope. Nope, one one panel. And uh, I remember the last time the Pope came up, I was like, oh, this is probably the last time we're going to see the Pope in Batman <laughs> comics. As I recall, that was the last time Josh was on, too. In, in, in inadvertently go, going Pope heavy here. Pope watch? I do love the Pope panel, though. The Pope panel, though, is is great in that. I have that in my notes. Let us hear the devil out. But we're going to go in chronological order. So that one will be the last one of the night. First of the night is Zero Hour. Uh, These are Zero Hours, numbers four to zero. And we're also doing uh, Batman Volume 1, number 511. The writer on the main series is Dan Juergens with the Batman issue by Doug Mensch. Pencils by Juergens and Mike Manley for Batman. Inks by Jerry Ordway and Joe Rubenstein. Colors by Gregory Wright and Adrian Roy. Letters by Gaspar Saladino and Ken Brusnak. Edited by Mark McEvney and Casey Carlin on Zero Hour. And Denny O'Neill and Jordan B. Gorfinkel on Batman. The cover date for this event is September of 1994. Time is coming unraveled. Waves of entropy have started eating history from the past to the future, making their way to the present. And heroes from alternate timelines have begun to appear. Who is causing this crisis in time and who will have to give their life to stop it? So Zero Hour is the, for me, I've got a fond memory as this is the first DC line-wide crossover I read. I'd read annual events, you know, Armageddon 2001, things like that. But this was the first, you know, miniseries with tie-ins that I read all the the tie-ins to. And it is, of the three crossovers, and I'll kind of, in my head, talk about how each of these lines up. This is the one that's, we are looking to change a lot about the universe. So we're going to be all over the place and just take, you know, this character, that character, this character, this plot line, this character, this plot line, back forth, back forth, lots of little moments here and there and setting things up for the future. And no real core spine of a character. I mean, you get certain characters who show up more than others, but this isn't one that follows any one character's journey, which we'll see much more of in the second story. Props to Dan Jurgens because... This might be the most restrained he has ever been in his entire career in his use of Booster Gold. That man fucking loves him some Booster Gold and any opportunity or excuse he has. If you gave him zero hour today, Booster Gold would be in like 80% of the pages. It's a time travel story. I mean, nowadays where Booster is, that's what Booster does. Was Jurgens the full-on creator of Booster, or was he just a co-creator? Yeah. I I'm pretty sure Jurgens is the full-on creator. I'd have to, I'm not on Wikipedia right now, but Jurgens loves loves him Booster Gold. I am very curious 
because Josh and I are both coming into these as deeply steeped in not just bat lore, but DC lore. Will you in general, not as steeped in the wider DC universe as you are in just the Batman corner of things. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so you know, I read metal and dark metal and metal squared, you know, whatever the fuck Scott Snyder's been up to the last five years. And I was like, this stuff is dense and really hard to follow. And I felt like a fucking moron. And then I read zero hour and it's like, Oh, so these events are always dense and hard to follow. Okay. Not so dumb. No, you're, it, they, they require a level of commitment to the bit. And the bit here is 70 years of continuity. Zero hour absolutely opens up and runs from start to finish under the assumption that you have read Crisis on Infinite Earths. Which in 1993, if you're doing an event to comic readers and we're, whatever, less than 10 years out from, you know, the biggest line, whatever, like, then yeah, like it's, it was a fair assumption, but it absolutely, it, it does throw ways to, you know, Psycho Pirate and other stuff. Like, it's just assuming that you've, you've read that. You, you have to know that this is the first of what will be an eternal commitment by DC to clean up their continuity in the wake of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And it's also assuming that you've read Armageddon 2001 and its follow-ups, so you know who Wave Rider is, who the Linear Men are, and how Monarch became extant. Yeah, they throw a lot of Monarch. I don't even remember being confused about that. Like when I read this as a kid, because I had not read any of that yet, but it, yes, that is absolutely a Sue. And th- I mean, like that's a pretty pivotal role in some of the many Scooby-Doo-esque pulling off the mask. Um, oh, it's you moments, um, you know, where they're revealing and re-revealing and faking out of who the big bad is here. Yeah, and the big bad, reading it in retrospect, I got who it was knowing it this time. Because I hadn't read Emerald Twilight when I read Zero Hour, so I had no frame of reference for the Hal Jordan. And like the first issue of Green Lantern I read was the issue that crossed over with Zero Hour. A lot of my first DC books outside of... Batman and Superman, which had been the things I'd been reading, was zero hour. Because I've just gotten to the crossover and was like, okay. And I came out of it with, you know, a couple of new favorites. I mean, I never stopped reading Flash after zero hour because a lot of the Flash crossovers into zero hour are great books. Between the, the introduction of Impulse, which is the stuff that led into zero hour, and then going right into Terminal Velocity, which is a great story. Yeah, and you can really tell as an Impulse fan how new Impulse was here. Impulse was, and now I know Impulse was so new in Zero Hour because it was kind of widely in a like pre-Wikia world. Like it was widely kind of reported or sold as like the first appearance of Impulse was either like zero hour number three or flash 92, um, which 
now is very much solidified as Flash 92. But um, yeah, like he's so new here. Jurgens has absolutely no, no idea who the carry. He's just a teenager, which as you know, we read going through, you know, the, the Young Justice and the uh, Impulse 50 ones is very much not who Bart is. Bart is not your quintessential teenager. If anything, you know, if you want to play it safe, you know, you write him as more like a toddler in a teenage body and, you know, you'll be more on, on brand. So very, very interesting getting that kind of snarky teenager attitude. Yeah, there, there was no read on that character yet. And you get so much here that is set up for what they're doing next. You have all these cutaways to Dr. Mist, who is a C-list character at best, that was setting up for the Primal Force ongoing. That was one of the series that launched right out of Zero Hour. A setup of the new Manhunter ongoing that lasted 12 issues and a zero and then went nowhere. But the one that now makes me smile is the setup for Starman, which was the big hit out of all those zeros. The Starman is a series that ran 80 plus issues when you count the zero issue and the annuals and all the tie-ins and remains one of my favorite series. And it was just Jack Knight's first appearance is in Zero Hour. It is in Zero Hour number one. Yeah, this is, the kind of the end of the wrap up of the justice society as they had reset them and bringing in the new younger versions um, or the new era versions of a number of those characters, you know, some of which lasted, most of which didn't. And this is the last hurrah of the original continuity legion of superheroes. They sort of made it out of crisis unrebooted. And they get their reboot out of here where you get the reboot Legion. Of these three events, this is the one that has the least amount of Batman to it. He has at least a couple of really strong scenes in each of the other two. In this one, other than um, you know, he has a moment with Superman and then he has a moment where time eats him. And that's about it in Zero Hour. The main member of the bat family that has a part in zero hour is batgirl and this is probably i don't know the thing that immediately turned me off to at least uh what is that 511 in here 511 as it ties into zero hour as it tries to tell some kind of interesting story is just trash i absolutely hated it in how it tied once again, once again, into Killing Joke. And it did one of those things that just irritates the shit out of me in that coming up with the most offensive thing imaginable is not insight. It's not clever. It's not funny. It's not you being dark. Digging up the corpse of Jim Gordon it's not a thing you should put in your comic book, right? If you're going to do that, you know, if you're going to have a Joker who decides to dig up Jim Gordon, just have Joker take a shit on him too, right? If you want to do that, do them both. So I, ugh, for the Batgirl stuff, for insinuating that uh, in some timeline, Bruce and Barbara had a relationship 
and for the Jim Gordon corpse stuff, I just fucking hated this. And as as Matt has already told me, it's one more strike against Doug Minch for me. I'm going to play devil's advocate because I, while I, I I read some of that as problematic as well, don't get me wrong. Just two points of devil's advocate on there. One, as this is 1994, going back to the killing joke well isn't something that had been done to death at this point. Killing Joke is only seven years old at this point, whether that's right or wrong. And also when you look at this is Barbara returning to the Bat Books. She has not been a regular cast member in the Bat Books for years. She's been in the Suicide Squad for years. So this is bringing her back into that. I will say at least for 511, Barbara does not come off as bad in it as she does in a, in one or two moments in the rest of the series. The other thing that I just want, and again, this is me playing devil's advocate because I don't like the Bruce. I've never been fond of the Bruce and Barbara thing to begin with. This is still an ambiguous time where Barbara is older than we picture her now when barbara was introduced in the 60s she was introduced as a potential love interest for bruce not for dick she was supposed to be a grown woman she was probably in her at least mid if not late 20s while dick was still in high school it was only probably after zero hour it was during the periods when Barbara became a member of the Bat family again, where they subtly de-aged her to make her more of a peer with Dick Grayson. Remember, she, when she was introduced, she was a professional woman. She had her degree. She was a professional librarian. And Dick was either a senior in high school or a freshman in college. So she was supposed to be Bruce's peer. It's only years of changed continuity that has made her Grayson's. And in the 90s, once Oracle became a major stalwart across DC and in the Bat Books and in JLA, you've got a character that just you can't draw in your, you know, TNA pinup style. You can't draw her in the contortion so you can show tits and ass at the same time like so many of the artists like to. So she just looks older it's a shame but too many of the artists like don't know what to do like well you know if we're not overly sexualizing her then she's a shrew like there's no other that's those are the only two options for women and so you know she very much reads as being in her mid-30s in in most of the oracle stuff if 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 you want to you know dig up that trauma and go back to war games i mean She's not written as, you know, a, a Teen Titans level character up in the, the Watchtower during War Games either. Like she's very much a, a more mature female character. Like she's an, she's an adult. She is the grown up in the room. But I think we can all agree the digging up Jim's Gor- Jim Gordon's corpse and propping him up in Commissioner Dent's office is in bad taste. Very much so. 
the 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 main thing I I don't really have anything to defend in five eleven, but if I'm where I'm going to give it points is for the art, um, particularly the Joker art. There are just gorgeous focuses and um, highlighted panels by Manley and Rubenstein. Um, the opening one with the Joker is one of them I have marked, and then a number of them throughout the issue. Love the art on the Joker in that, and a lot of really, really great panels. Also liked the trick that, you know, the first four or five pages, I think at least to 511 are, the script is verbatim from Zero Hour Four, but the art is new. And so they kind of like re-image different camera angles. Um, it's like a, a, a re-shot of, retake of what was done there. And I, I really liked really liked how that art, you know, coming right after for compared, getting that that other view. Manley's run on Batman is kind of forgotten because it's a short run. He comes on for the back half of 500 and is definitely gone by, because Kelly Jones takes over at 515. But I don't even think Manley does all of Prodigal, the stuff that runs right up for that. I think this might be... I think he does he does zero the next issue. He might do some of Prodigal, but he only Prodigal died. was really rushed. So I mean, I feel like that was not a like consistent or anyone was all the way through on that, if I remember. I remember the Robin crossovers have two incredibly different artists. Cause there's Phil Jimenez on some of it, and an artist who I don't remember who has this really image style, like hardcore image knockoff Capullo style on that. But the, the Barbara stuff is, I like the idea of it, that she pops into a world, she sees herself as Oracle and she doesn't want to go back to the other world. I wish they could have spent more time dealing with that or her contemplating the fact that, yes, she's Oracle, she's in a wheelchair, but her father's alive. Like there was there was stuff to be mined there that they never did. And the other two bat titles that cross over into this have nothing to do with Oracle. It's Bruce winds up back in an alternate timeline where he was shot and not his parents. And one where you get bumbling golden age Alfred as opposed to regular Alfred. And neither of them have the... the follow up on that pathos and i wish that it could have i remember about 18 20 years ago going into a comic shop and uh the owner was one of those um you know old man yelling at the kids to get off his lawn types and he he told me he just looked fine and he's like uh, crisis on infinite earth was the biggest mistake dc ever made and and i remember it just like blew me away because this is also young mid early mid 20s me and I'm like what like that's like a classic that's epic like how could that be and he's like they should have never tried to get rid of all of the different universes and stories and you know they've been fucking it up and trying to make one continuity ever since and it's just it's a mess that they keep trying to fix and it's they'll never be able to make it all make sense and he said, like, at the time, like, you know, the, the Marvel's credit, like, the fact that it's just been one, they haven't tried to reset their universe 
up until that point is, you know, makes all of their history more relevant. And I was like, I didn't know what to do with that. I needed a long time to digest it. And it took a while before I was like, yeah, man. And a lot more zero hours that, you know, to come of which, you know, they've done quite a few before I really bought in. And I think the funniest thing about reading zero hour in 2023, particularly coming right off of reading dark crisis is that everything the quote unquote, like bad characters are saying all of their arguments for like why they deserve to live are are the exact same thing all the heroes throughout like infinite frontier and dark crisis and all the recent like that's all the rationale on the other side now in the the most recent line wides i really i want to defend dark crisis but i just can't i like the creators involved i just it was seven issues that went nowhere that just went in circles and that I always felt like, aha, now here we're going to get the big moment. It's like, no, the big moment never came. Dark crisis just kind of fizzled. Okay. So talk about big moments, right? Zero hour while surprisingly low on Batman, right? Does have a big moment. I thought that how clocking Superman still fucking holds up as like a holy shit epic moment and the type of thing that dark christ you know they have them in a bunch of them i think the superboy issue you know superboy versus superboy prime and infinite crisis um there are a number of these where you have your like your man like epic uh moments in these big crossovers and you know the supergirl and barry death Kara and barry death in uh the original crisis Dark Crisis tried really hard to have some of those and just didn't. Um, but because this one, how clock and how yeah. clock and Clark holds up. The Robin crossover, the issue of Robin, where Tim teams up with a time displaced Dick Grayson at his age, is a great cross because you get to see Tim who's always sort of compared himself to Dick, have to actually be in the same place with Dick at that age. Or the man of the issue of Man of Steel, where all Superman does is keep running into different Batmans of different eras, with Bogdanov killing it, hitting the styles of each of the artists who are drawing Batman in those issues, is great. That, that's one for when we get Corey back for the promise. We swear we're going to do an, an episode where you're doing three good Superman stories as opposed to winding up with Joe Kelly and John Byrne for two of the three. Uh, <laughs> that was rough. Yeah. But yeah, and I think you just, you said it, but the thing that this does come up to in the end is that the big bad here winds up not being extant who was Hank Hall, who was Monarch, who was Hawk, which, you know, that was an anti-climax in friggin' Armageddon 2001. If it were going to be here again, it's like, really? But no, it's Hal Jordan. It's Hal after being, at this point, driven mad by grief. We are nowhere near the fear entity at this point. And him just deciding to rewrite the universe because he can. I have in my notes here too, particularly in issue three there are some moments where 
Jergens basically has characters like calling out some inconsistencies since Crisis, where they're like, what? But like, that doesn't make any sense. I thought this changed. And then like one of them disappears into the time stream, like, oh, well, I guess we only have one version now. Like just in text and dialogue, like cleaning up the timeline and the continuity. Like, whoops, we fucked that one up. Here's the fix. Hawkman. Hawkman was a big one, yes. And that was, yeah, Hawkman was just never right ever again. The, the, the only way to fix Hawkman is the way, honest to God, for all the other problems I have with him at this point, but that Jeff Johns was like, hey, guess what? Here's Hawkman. I heard Vendetti did a good cleanup recently. I haven't read it, but I've heard really good things about his cleanup. You know, he kind of did the Morrison approach of everything. Yes, everything happened. And here's how. Yeah, it, no, it was really good because with him, it's Hawkman wasn't just reincarnated through time. It was time and space. So the Thanagarian Hawkman is a Hawkman. There was a Kryptonian version. He, he bounces across space and time and space as well as time. It was very cool. But it feeds off of a lot of the stuff that Johns and then James Robinson did when he was doing the Hawkman ongoing right out of Hawkman's return to JSA, which a lot of it was just like, hey, you want Hawkman? Here's Hawkman. Continuity is just going to be a mess. So just like we're getting some cool. He's a dude with wings and a mace and he hits shit. There you go. Yeah. Talking about this in a Batman context, there's not a lot. Batman doesn't appear in the last issue except for, oh, I guess I'm alive again. Isn't that cool? The problem with this, which I I mentioned it sort of when I started talking about it, and it's something we will see better treated in the next two stories, is that there's not one character who is the point of view of this series. Batgirl would have been a great choice because she was a time-displaced character. If you had sort of followed Batgirl through this whole thing, as she is in there at the beginning and at the end, and you, I mean, you could have cut away to other characters and other things, which the other two stories do, but if it had sort of been grounded in Barbara's emotion and Barbara's arc, you would have had something to follow. And they, I felt like they were trying to do that with the JSA a little bit, but then the JSA just stops being there towards the the end of the series. The last issue has none of the JSA members. It needed emotional stakes as well as these big cosmic stakes. And without that emotion, the story is kind of flat. Crisis on Infinite Earths had the Superman. It was about... You know, and then you had Superman of Earth 1, Earth 2, and Superman, Superboy Prime, who were sort of these emotional through lines. And you had Barry and uh, Kara. And, I mean, their deaths matter. Barry is an important character in that story up until his death. And Supergirl's death isn't a fridging, because she dies nobly for her own purposes. And, yes, it motivates... Clark to a degree, but she doesn't die just to motivate Clark. She dies because it is the natural evolution of her character to do the right thing in that moment. But we don't have that here. Barbara, in the end, does sacrifice herself. 
to do the right thing. But since we haven't had enough time to ground ourselves in Barbara's story, it feels like it, it's a fridging. It's there to get Ollie pissed enough to shoot Hal. Yeah, and narratively, for the role Ollie plays at the end, he should have been in it more earlier on as well. It, it is it is definitely, it's unfocused in that respect. Barbara probably is the best, but it, again, it's one of the weird things where she's so sympathetic and now, like, she's not wrong, but because of the fact of where she's going to wind up standing and what that means that you know no like wanting to exist as an au character that's evil that's get the fuck out of here like that can't happen i mean you just couldn't i i I don't know i guess they, they just couldn't or weren't willing to do that at this point it's interesting we'll be able to track barbara through these three stories actually because she has parts in both of the other two that we'll be doing tonight For the record, Extant disappears at the end of Zero Hour. And if you're wondering where he returns, it's in a one-shot called Impulse Bart Saves the Universe. A boy takes care of him. Yes, he does. I forgot. That's a great, that is a great one-off. But I think with that note, I I think it's probably time. Oh, that means it's time. But Zero Hour on the big board. Oh, boy. So today... As of now, we have 228 stories on the big board. Number one remains Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. Down at number 50 is The Vengeance of Bane, the origin and first appearance of The Man Who Broke the Bat. Coming in at a sexy 69, it's Batman and Robin, numbers one to three. Down at 100 is Batman. Batman 66 meets the man from uncle down at 150. We got Batman and son, the first appearance of Damian Wayne at 200 is Batman versus the vampire. The first story featuring the monk. And Hey, guess what? 228 is still white knight. Boo. So the inclusion of 511 is important here because it gives it some Batman content and brings it down some notches. <laughs> okay. I mean, this isn't in that lowest echelon of stories. Well, that one element isn't great. I don't think this is high. I, I think, honestly, the other two are, tonight are better than this. This is the lowest of the three. I think somewhere between 150 and 200 I, w- I was looking down in that lower area well here's 162 we have josh here is yeah it was the first six issues of young justice better or worse than that there's nothing in those first six issues as good as uh how punching superman and there definitely is cringy misogynistic things that both have we didn't even talk about how wonder woman gets treated as a fucking nursemaid in this um, oh god yeah barbara there's no other female character that does anything power girl is in labor the entire story and wonder woman is just by her side yeah oh 
the words come out of Wonder Woman's mouth to another character. They need warriors now. You go out there. I'll stay here and deliver the baby. Yeah, that. Oh, that. Just, I, I have that in my notes. That is not good. Oh, boy. The Young Justice 1 through 6 we're talking about. It opens up with a female character whose whole thing is that she's just big tits. So, I mean, those might be a wash. Yeah, but... Does Zero Hour go above that? The treatment of Wonder Woman that way, the the most iconic female superhero. Oh, boy, that's... It can't go above boners at once. Yes, I was just about to say that. It is not going above boners. No, no, it's not. And that would be our 159. Yes. Because we're we're from the future. (laughs) Okay, now death in the family, right? Death in the family, clearly more important Batman. But that's also where um, Joker dresses like an Arab sheik, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Death in the family is just so friggin' bonkers. And it's just so weird because, again, Josh, you're, we're, we're slightly in the future. We just did the two issues before that, which are these dark... You know, they, they take serious subject matter. And yeah, there's some goofiness. There's still some like diplomatic immunity stuff in there. That's like, boy, the 80s love diplomatic immunity as a plot point. It's just been revoked. But it takes this stuff so seriously. And then you've got death in the family where it's like, hey, Joker's the new UN ambassador from Iran. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I thought that was a good idea. I think, oddly enough, even though you wouldn't think of comparing them, the Young Justice 1 through 6, like, that is definitely the right neighborhood. Because as I go, you know, within a 10 stories or so down, I'm like, there's things you can't put zero hour below. And you get up to boners not too much higher. And it's like, there's things you can't put it above. Yeah, no, I mean, you get you have boners a few above, you get above that, you get digital justice, which is one of the great monkey astronauts. This is not a monkey astronaut. This is a mechanic trying to fix a car with the wrong tools. Uh, refresh me on Shadowbox at 163. Chuck Dixon and Tom Lyle. It's Tim Drake. It's not quite his return to Gotham, but it's King Snake. And all the fallout from the original Robin miniseries coming to to roost for Tim. It's one with the problematic issues of uh, Dixon being a right wing wacko come up where it's him talking about the the Hong Kong handover and how it's going to flood the streets with all these gangsters who are going to have to leave Hong Kong and Jim Gordon is a cop with a capital C. There's some uncomfortable stuff there. This is the, the region of stories that have uncomfortable content, but are generally pretty well put together comics or some trifles or stuff that I can't convince you to put any higher because it's by Morrison. Mm. Sorry, because um, I, I stand by Club of Heroes deserving to be way higher than that. I I would put this above uh, Dini's Dark Knight at 166. Okay. 
And above that is her sister's keeper, which is the Catwoman miniseries, the follow-up to year one, which is just the darkest thing and has that thing where it's like, yeah, it feels like this was supposed to be six issues and they cut it to four. So it's a three issue arc and then trying to cram the entire last three issue arc into one issue. And the Batman Harley Quinn above that, is that the one that takes place in no man's land, even though it shouldn't take place in no man's land? Mm-hmm. We're talking about cramming stuff in. Yeah. So we're in the neighborhood. Like oh, definitely. Definitely. Like this is just a cul-de-sac here and it could be between any of these houses. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm happy to go 165 on this. All right. All right. 165 it is. Our second story of the night is Underworld Unleashed. Here we're covering Underworld Unleashed numbers one to three. Underworld Unleashed Batman Devil's Asylum and Underworld Unleashed Patterns of Fear. The writers and artists, etc. will be respectively Mark Wade, Alan Grant, and Roger Stern. Pencils by Howard Porter, Brian Stelfreeze, and Anthony Williams. Inks by Dan Green and Dennis Jonke on Underworld Unleashed, Rick Burchett and Andy Lanning. Colors by Rick Taylor and Heroic Age, Linda Medley and Patricia Mulhill. Letters by Chris Eliopoulos, Bill Oakley and Patricia Prentice. And edited by Ruben Diaz, Alessand Morales and Brian Augustine, Darren Vincenzo and Scott Peterson and Dan Thorsland. The cover dates are November and December of 2005. All hell has broken loose across Earth. The devil Neron has offered supervillains power to fit their wildest imaginings to bring chaos to the planet. As the heroes face down Neron, it falls to unlikely ones to stop him from completing his evil plans. Matt, what does the devil need with a supervillain? <laughs> That was the one thought I had reading this whole series. If you're Satan, right? What do you need with any of these guys? That is a classic question in superhero comics when you bring in the devil. Because really, if he's the friggin' devil, he shouldn't need it. You can also argue that, of course, as we see in the cosmology of these worlds, for all of the talk that Neron is the devil, he's not the devil. He's a, a duke of hell. He's a powerful demon, but he's uh, not uh, the ex- devil. Excuse me. Excuse me. Point of order. He's a minor devil. He's not the he's not the super devil. He's just a minor devil. Carry yes. on. Yes. He is not Lucifer Morningstar. And, of course, you have all the issues of the questions of you know, how much the Vertigo stuff is actually part of the DC universe. I was just going to say, this would have so much more Constantine in it today. Yes, exactly. This would have Constantine and Swamp Thing and all of those Vertigo characters that were at that point sort of shuffled off into the corner and you couldn't talk about them. I'm glad the Spectre got to be a part of it. I mean, it's one of these things where I was always sort of surprised that they never decided that the Spectre needed to be a Vertigo character because he's kind of a Vertigo character. Other note, one thing that I just remembered as you were reading the publication dates and 
this is a big thing for me in, in line wides. And it goes same thing for zero hour. I love when line wides come out on like a weekly basis, when it's actually like a story you can follow week to week and you get in and you get fucking out as opposed to forever evil, which just went on for fucking ever. Forever evil is a great one to pick at because it took so goddamn long to come out that by halfway through the writers of all the DC titles gave up on even trying to pretend that their characters were even involved or anything like they were just like no fuck it fuck it there are no consequences for our characters i don't even care what jeff johns does at the end you kill our character it doesn't fucking matter like we're we're just we're moving forward you get in you get out in one month zero hour was one month this was bi-weekly we'll talk about but final night which is next was weekly genesis after that was weekly one million was weekly and joker last laugh was weekly And that was the last of those big weekly crossovers because you then had Infinite Crisis, which had Identity Crisis, which actually came out pretty close to on time. Infinite Crisis, which had some delays. Final Crisis, which was just asking for trouble when you said, yeah, J.G. Jones can do seven issues of a a monthly book. Yeah, that's going to happen. It didn't. And then... Forever Evil, oh, Flashpoint, which came out, that was, I think, bi-weekly. Flashpoint had a pretty good timetable, but the other the thing about Flashpoint is, is they took the universe off the table. They closed out the DC universe and then ran all of those. You know, they did the the Age of Apocalypse. Yeah. The, I mean, Flashpoint is an example of it, but, you know, where you, you stop the publishing schedule and you do the minis and the other things. So um, you do all the AU titles. So it doesn't burn the line. Um, but yeah, I, I there was no Twitter uh, discourse, obviously, back then. But when some of the line-wides, like for Marvel, came out weekly as a result of COVID impact, and then you got to have like the weekly Twitter discourse and people following it, people following it the way they follow weekly TV shows like Last of Us Now or something. And you're just like, everyone's in and everyone's on the same page with this one thing. What's going to happen next? Not too much time to speculate. Then the next one comes out and we're all going crazy about that. It's just such a better experience. I, I do love and miss like hearing, hearing you say that it only came out over two months makes me happy. Yeah. What I like about this one versus Zero Hour is that here, this crossover has a spine of two characters who are important to the main narrative. That you have all sorts of stuff with, you know, Neron and all these other villains that he's teaming up with and bits with a bunch of heroes. But this is really a story about Trickster and Blue Devil. Could you imagine a crossover today that was about a D-list hero and a charitably D-list villain who's barely appeared in years? And because of that, there are stakes for these characters. Because you know, guess what? This crossover is going to end, but... Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman and the main members of the JLA, generally speaking, are going to be fine. But when you're focused on the trickster and blue devil, 
bad shit can happen. And you get a point of view for the story. It's not just this sort of bouncing around and getting little snippets of what this character is thinking and that character is thinking. There is that. You get pages with neither of those characters. But those two form an arc in this story, a character arc, which we didn't really get in Zero Hour for anyone. Yeah, and the twists with them are played honest they don't come out of left field but they're not so blatantly telegraphed that you see them coming particularly with blue devil like you know something's gonna swerve then when it happens um and you start to see it come like it was it was really well designed i'm i've managed to find a way to to get mark wade onto your list most times that we've met um i'm a big mark wade fan and I, I like the way he crafted this. You know, he is a a fan of comics and, um, you know, comics history. He will bring back old characters and lore. Like, he has a good feel and respect for the history um, and what came before. He's not one of the writers that comes in and sets fire to other people's toys um, and shits in the sandbox. And... He does a lot of the Mark Way things I like here. And I also really like the structure of this. You know, the first issue is all about the bargains offered for the souls of the villains. And it's good, but you get none of the heroes. So, I mean, we're talking about a three issue line wide and you don't even like, nah, nah, none of the heroes, this first issue. Then you get essentially the the inverse the 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 dark mirror of it with all of the bargains neuron makes to the heroes in the second issue which i would say that of any of the issues that we read for tonight the second issue of underworld unleash is probably the best single issue i thought that neuron going around and trying to make those offers that you know are going to be rejected but seeing it still trying to find a way to make it twist like to twist the knife i thought was really great yeah you said it might have had the knight's best issue i think it also had the knight's worst issue outside of 511 in that patterns of fear is just info pages loosely structured around you know this barbara gordon story where barbara gordon's temptation could have been much more dramatic and much more interesting but it's just like, here, hand me those files. I will take a look at your notes and just awkward and forced and bleh. Agreed. I, I have in my notes that Matt made us include this just so that way he could tank the ranking on Underworld Unleashed. No, I, I tossed it in there because I wanted the through line of Barbara. That without that, we didn't have a Barbara bit in Underworld to carry it through into Final Night. It was like having to read 40 Wikipedia pages, only less fun. Again, also, there's a context there because this was the 90s. There wasn't Wikipedia. Matt, we had zines. But we also had Devil's Who's Asylum, Who's. Which was a we had Who's Who's. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what that basically was. It was Who's Who with a Barbara Gordon framing device. But we also had Devil's Asylum, which I loved. I really like Devil's Asylum. Uh, if you're 
dropping acid, I guess, and you can navigate the change in tone throughout the thing. I didn't enjoy the art for Devil's Asylum. I didn't particularly care for the story. I thought it was way too long before Batman showed up. But once we got the reveal of the Devil's Bargain for Bruce, it it, it made the whole thing worth it. I love that ending. And I liked the Jeremiah Arkham of it. That you see the one thing that Underworld hints at and then sort of shows doesn't tell a lot is how Neuron's presence is affecting just people. That there's this darkness that is sort of pervading the world. And seeing that through Jeremiah Arkham as he's getting these more, even more sadistic than he normally has urges makes that point better than just, hey, and then this guy is deciding to steal smallpox. But I guess I'm wrong. <laughs> you're look, you're you're not wrong, right? I but De- the- Devil's Asylum for me, I just I didn't like how it opened with Oh, all of the all of the guys in the nut house just sitting around playing cards and oh then the card game goes wrong and I, I did like maybe the call back to uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That was possibly intentional, but the the swing there just in tone throughout was was too much for me. And I'll second Josh's point that it does take a while for Batman to show up. See, I, I took it more as an Arkham Asylum story, so I was I was okay with that. It felt more like following up on something like Mad Men Across the Water. Mm, okay. Yeah, I can see that. That for me, that this was in, because it's Alan Grant too, and this is Grant's arc for Jeremiah Arkham, that he basically started in the last Arkham, and that winds up ending in Shadow of the Bat 82, The Waxman and the Clown, the last story before no man's land and so this i for me this is more part of that narrative than it is a batman story fair your your what does the devil need with a supervillain point this is for me much more along the lines of fustian bargains that this is the Mm. devil who can't act and that's the kind of thing that is that if the devil can go and can smack around Green Lantern, then yes, why does he need these supervillains? I wish Neron couldn't physically act on the earthly plane. Then that would make more sense. And it also, we are only a few years out from needful things, Stephen King's needful <laughs> things. And this, especially the bit in the first issue where Neron orchestrates the power outage at Bell Rev feels like needful things. Yep. It's him lining up all these little dominoes and giving everyone the right little push. I think that I like that. I like that Neron is playing this game and that it does set up from the very beginning the fact that Neron can't resist the deal. And Wade writes all of that very well. He's a big fan of needful things too. There's definitely, there's also a little of the kind of 
it's something that Jason Aaron suffers from a lot, which is when you want to build up and make your bad guy so big and bad that then it's hard to beat him or bring him down at the end. And with only three issues, it turns so fucking quick. Oh, jeez, um, doesn't ever. The third issue is the story feels rushed, but the art, oh my God, is so rushed. Easily the worst Howard Porter art I've ever seen. There's a panel when they're on the bridge in Gotham where I can't even tell the perspective. It looks like they're hovering flat against a wall when they're supposed to be standing on the ground. Like it is, it is some bad, bad art in that final issue. Um, you know, whereas a couple of years later, they'd just be like, fuck it, we'll wait three months to put this out and it won't make any sense anymore. It, it doesn't stick the landing in parts. The Captain Marvel stuff is great. I loved that. I forgot that it was actually him. I remember, so I'm reading it and every time they're like, you know, no, like he's going to get the one purest, you know, and I'm like, it really should be fucking Billy. It should be Billy. Like, and then it was again. And I'm like, fuck, I knew it. Yes. <laughs> Good job. Because Superman is off earth at this point. He is in the Superman titles were in the middle of a crossover within them called the trial of Superman, where he's, I can't remember why, but he's been brought before this alien tribunal. So he's not on earth. So it's it, his dark Phoenix saga. He's being charged with, he's the sins of the father and he's responsible for the death of Krypton. It's actually kind of underrated. Trial of Superman is not fucking bad. I reread it a couple of years back and for as many chefs are in the kitchen on that one, it should be a lot worse than it is. I've been starting to pick at the the triangle era of Superman when dollar bin diving since I, I'm at a point where I can't get any Batman books out of a dollar bin anymore. Anything I need is well out of dollar bin range. So that's one that I might have to, to dig for next. I will gladly, if it's a decent condition triangle issue that I don't have, I will, I will gladly take it anytime for a dollar or less. It doesn't matter what the fuck it is. Yeah. The trickster. A is a character I think I have a soft spot for because of Mark Hamill, who played the trickster on the John Wesley ship flash series and voiced him in justice league. But this is a great story where you take this guy who is just a grifter with some gadgets and you throw him in with the devil because in the long run the devil is a grifter that's what a faustian devil is and here he's got this count if we're talking about the trick he doesn't talk about the council of villains and the joker who is just the the moment where you're introducing the council of villains and i love and the tricksters narrating them it's abracadabra and Lex Luthor, and Dr. Polaris, and Cersei, and then the Joker. Trickster's like, oh, fuck, it's Joker. Jesus. Right. Great, Neron. Get the one guy nobody wants to be in a room with. But it's also great. It, it kind of reminded me a little of um, whatever happened to the Cape Crusader with that, like, you have all the bad guys, and then Joker shows up, and people are like, fuck. Yeah, like, to... Even we're literally in hell surrounded by demons and I don't get nervous until I see that the Joker's here too. Mm -hmm. And then the Joker and Luthor playing the others 
and you know that meanwhile the two of them are both trying to figure out the angle to take out the other one once they've gotten rid of the three with powers i forgot that it wasn't in these books that we were reading but i think it's in the mark wade led tie-in written tie-in so like in flash and impulse and stuff like that but once they're in the snow globe there are little scenes in some of the other tie-ins of just Joker and Luther trapped in the snow globe trying to get out that are fucking hilarious and delightful. And I was hoping they were going to be in this, but... I think it, one of them is definitely Superman Man of Tomorrow, which was the quarterly Superman book that filled in the fifth week. There was a, It was a Lex Luthor issue during Underworld because you see him take the bargain and i think parts of it are set yeah because i i remember one of them distinctly is joker actually like making a snowball and hucking it at luthor's head and yes. i think it might have been in man of tomorrow because when i'm picturing the panel i'm picturing tom grummet art so it has to have been somewhere in the superman books if it was tom grummet art but i love that the you know, joker and luthor are just sitting there like do this do that ah, ah, yeah yeah that's gonna do it and then like yeah we got him and then it's like oh, no no you guys are in the the snow globe too it's it's, it's a little saint elsewhere they're playing fucking tic-tac-toe on the book you're a bunch of super villains teaming up is never a good thing teaming up with either the joker or luthor is bad teaming up with both of them yeah and let's not forget you know all the others sell their souls for whatever joker cuban cigars because <laughs> he knows that that thing isn't worth anything at this point even if he believes in a soul it's like he's the joker the box of cubans is worth more than what he's got left of his soul also he'd do it just because he thinks it's funny yeah we sort of mentioned it with issue two where the heroes are being offered their deals neuron offering bruce jason todd back and getting the Jason in the shadows of the cave is right out of the monkey's paw. It's the knock on the door when they've asked for their son back before they realize, oh, right, he fell into a thresher and we've just asked for him back. Oh, fuck, don't open that door. That, that scene closes with the sound of a crowbar hitting a pumpkin. Yeah. Ooh. I also like the way it reads now with so many bad Batman comics written in between then and now where going into it, you're like, fuck, don't don't make the bargain be for his parents back. Like, don't make it be for his fucking parents back. And then you remember, like, at this point in time, the biggest regret was Jason. Um, and yeah, those in just a couple pages that played really well yeah now the thing that I, I sat back when i was reading this is for all the villains who make these deals one of them stuck blockbuster most of these other guys are back in their more traditional forms pretty soon thereafter but so some of the redesigns stuck around longer than others because there were a lot of redesigns Yes. A lot of redesigns. Blockbuster is the most impactful, though, because of the role that character would play for years in the ongoing Nightwing title. Right. 
this has a huge impact on Starman. Not from the stuff that we see here, but Neron makes a couple of bargains that we don't see that impact Starman tremendously. I mean, it does have the deal he makes with Dr. Phosphorus, who shows up in the Starman crossover to Underworld Unleashed. And he basically gives uh, Ted Knight Starman, the original Starman cancer, which plays out at the end. But there's a showcase issue that's a crossover where he goes to make the sh- a deal with the Shade and the Shade basically tells him to suck boots and Neron swears revenge. And so he makes two other deals, one with the Ragdoll and one with the Mist that we don't see, but that come into play at the very end of Starman as those two characters appear revitalized from tremendous injury and senility, respectively, and become players at the end of the series. And they, it's just like Robinson's like, yeah, they made deals with Neron and we didn't get to see them before because the shade pissed him off and he knew that the one thing to make the shade suffer would be to destroy Opal City. So let's give these guys some bargains and let them go to town. Caraxes, uh, the, the thing that Killer Moth becomes, he sticks with that design and those powers until Flashpoint resets him to traditional Killer Moth. But a lot of the other ones just sort of fade away. Mr. Freeze doesn't have his weird freeze projection outside of his armor powers for more than a couple appearances before he goes back to a more traditional Mr. Freeze. The rogues, but the rogues come back eventually. They they get to come back. He still has the same design of armor, even if the powers aren't the same a year later in Final Night. Because I remember, I have it in my notes for Final Night, how bullshit it is, because Freeze should not be in his fucking suit while he's out there and the whole world is fucking frozen. He should be, like, dancing in his underwear. <laughs> yes, he, he should be out there reveling that he doesn't have to be in the suit and that the world is fucking, like, that's the world he tries to fucking freeze the Earth and turn it into and name any Mr. Freeze story. Uh, anybody have anything else? Two more notes. A uh, little one on Devil's Asylum. I was greatly amused by uh, Arkham's methods of tormenting the inmates. The laser scar removal on Zaz, the cell full of odd numbers for Two-Face, um, all of those twisted little things he came up with. And uh, my final one, just on particularly the ending on issue three, is that I feel like it suffers too much from the absence of Batman and Super. Like, it can't overcome it in a way that for recent memory, the Wakanda Forever movie, doing the best you can with Shuri as the main character. But, you know, like that movie just couldn't overcome the loss of the two most magnetic, compelling characters from the first film. And I feel like you just can't, the whole, everything's at stake and we're going to war with Guy Gardner and Blue Devil and you're just like, y'all, there's a Superman somewhere. Like, It amazes me how much people writing crossovers seem to love Guy Gardner and Captain Adam. Those guys have big roles in all three of these. And it's like, eh. Especially Captain Adam, who I, I just never got Captain Adam. He's just such a stiff. I mean, I guess that's his thing. 
but he's such a stiff. Except in Zero Hour, where he became a kid for a couple minutes. Oh, no, that's the Adam. This is Captain Adam, the guy, the silver army guy. Ah, ah. The Adam stays a kid. Uh, he stays like eight. He becomes a teen titan for a while after this. Too many characters tonight. <laughs> yeah. Why did he become a teen titan after this? Because the next run of Teen Titans was written by Dan Jurgens. Jurgens, yes, it was. The Adam and a whole bunch of new characters who Jeff Johns will then mercilessly murder or just tear off their limbs. Oh, friggin' risk. Jeff Johns tore off both of his arms. Oh, Dave Judgment. That was another one that was weekly. Jeff Johns' first crossover for DC. The one that everybody forgets, the, the magic crossover. It was the one in between One Million and Last Laugh. And and Hal Jordan. That's the other one of the Hal Jordan trilogy. Zero Hour, Final Night, and Day of Judgment. It's the, the three Hal Jordan crossovers. Yes. Yeah, the one where he becomes the Spectre. That's the trajectory in between um, Emerald Twilight and Rebirth. Yep. But but we're not covering that tonight. So let's just, let's hit it. Uh, Matt, uh, putting the final point on that means it's time, but Underworld Unleashed on the big board. All right. So we know it's above zero hour. Yes. And we settled at 165 on that. Um, I'd put this above, we'll say super heavy at 128. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely go with that. You're like right in the area I was thinking because I was going to ask you to compare it to Injustice Volume 1. So where we're looking at the same part of the list. Oh, that's that's tough because the story for Injustice is so good, but the art is so bad. I'd probably say above Injustice, right? So keep keep walking up. Uh, I don't think I would put this above Armageddon 2001 Superman annual number three at 110. The highs in this are higher, but the lows are lower. That only has one issue, so it doesn't. So we're, yeah, I I think we can, we can put that as a ceiling. So zero year is one, we said 128, super heavy, right? Mm hmm. So somewhere in between 128 and 110. That's a, a limited range. Um, what was Batman Year 100 again? Year 100 is an Elseworlds, Paul Pope. It's this future fascist Gotham where you've got a very sort of street level Batman fighting a fascist government alongside a ragtag group of people and Jim Gordon's grandson. I mean, that sounds like a comp, but then I went a little lower and I feel like this shouldn't go above Secret of the Waiting Graves. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Secret of the Waiting Graves, I mean, that's the first Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams Batman story that has historical significance. It's a fun little story. Below that is Nightmare in Crimson, the, the monk story from the 80s. Oh. I could put this in between Secret of the Waiting Graves and Nightmare in Crimson. I would reread this again before rereading that again, because I just read that like a month or two ago. That's not too far off. Yeah. What do you think? New Will? 125? 125. 
And now, as the show enters its second day, we <laughs> hit final night. Yes. Our final story is indeed final night. The final night numbers one through four in Parallax Emerald Twilight number one. The writers are Carl Kiesel and Ron Mars, pencils by Stuart Immonen and Mike McCone, inks by Jose Marzan Jr. and Mark McKenna, colors by Lee Lawfridge and John Kalish, letters by Gaspar Saladino and Chris Eliopoulos, edited by Alessandra Morales and Dan Thorsland and Kevin Dooley and Eddie Berganza. Cover date is November of 1996. The Sun Eater, a cosmic entity, has found its way to Earth's sun. And it is only a matter of time before there is no sun left and Earth freezes. Earth's heroes fight to maintain order while also saving the sun, but it will take one of their own, long thought lost, to save Earth. Uh, I guess first thing, just because we always do it here, problematic creator watch. Once again, we've got Eddie Berganza, noted sex creep. Boo. Been kind of a night for douchebags. Yeah. Yeah, but he's our first real creep, so I'll take it. So while our first crossover of the night was this big, crazy, cosmic event, and our second was supernatural, but also was really grounded in these two particular characters' journey, this one, while, yes, you've got the sun is being eaten by a giant cloud monster, and while the stakes are huge, it's so strangely grounded because everyone can see the impact, not just the heroes, but the people of Earth are watching the planet freeze. While the stakes are huge, they're almost realistic for want of a better word for a giant cloud monster eating the sun. It gives you some more human moments than the other two do both in the i want to say is it mexican or central american i'm trying to remember where but the village that the ray goes to and the moments that the the character who uh came with the warning dusk the uh, the interactions that dusk has with humans and humanity in in various stages of grief as well it gives you kind of a, a street level humanity that the other two don't attempt really what a sad character dusk is going from one doomed planet to the next dusk and the sun eater are absolutely vibing on the silver surfer and galactus that she is the herald of this thing. And granted, she's not in its service, but there is that vibe. And the same way the surfer comes around to defend Earth, thanks to the kindness of Alicia Masters in The Coming of Galactus here, Dusk is turned against this planet by the fact that people can be monsters. Yeah, she met the Republicans first, which wasn't, wasn't really a good, <laughs> good look for Earth. We have a more street-level event here in that we spend more time with the common people. We aren't just with the superheroes. This is one that is grounded in 
DC history that you don't necessarily need to know. I don't I don't know how you how much of this you would know, Josh. Well, I know you don't know that the Sun Eater, the first time it appeared was in the Legion of Superheroes. And that in the Legion, a Legion member died to stop the Sun Eater, Pharaoh Lat. Ah. This was set up for those of us who know Legion history. This was a subversion of the expectation because we had the new Legion, the rebooted Legion out of Zero Hour showing up here in the present. And it's like, oh, well, hey, they just introduced Pharaoh Lad and they've got the Sun Eater. Guess what's going to happen? Because that's the story that was one of the central early stories of Legion history, that Pharaoh Lad is the first Legionnaire to die and stay dead throughout the entire original Legion continuity. So when he shows up here, everyone who knows their Legion history is expecting, it's like every time Harvey Dent shows up before the acid is thrown in his face. It's like, okay, it's death by cannon. It's like, he's Pharaoh Lad. He's going to die fighting the Sun Eater. Uh, And then when he gets on the ship in issue four, it's like, okay, well, he's going to do something. He's going to die. And then, yeah, Hal Jordan's here, but... Feral Lad's got to die in the Sun Eater. And they completely subvert that expectation, which props to Carl Kiesel for doing that. I loved that he completely baited anyone who knew the history with the introduction of Feral Lad and then completely tosses it on its head. In that Feral Lad is literally tossed back to Earth. Yep. Gets yeeted right the hell out of there. (laughs) So to to complete one of the arcs that we've been discussing over the course of the evening, this is the first time Oracle is pulled in to be the central clearinghouse of information for heroes. This is right around the beginning of Morrison's JLA because Superman out of this, he loses his powers and when he gets them back, he's electric blue Superman. He becomes sh- electric blue Superman like one or two issues after New World Order. Yep. The, I'm pretty sure it's the next issue. It's issue five. He's electric blue Superman. So that's right around Justice League three or four is probably coming out the same time as Final Night. And Oracle joins Justice League in 16. Yep. So she is just... At that point, awesome fucking issue. Oh, it's so good. I can't 16 wait. And 16 and 17. Yep. Also, probably my favorite Catwoman story. It is. a Oh, yeah. We will be covering that along with the Prometheus one shot that led into it just so we have the setup. But that is a story that will be covered someday because that's that is is classic. So this is the the point where Barbara now becomes a major player in the DC universe starting here in final night and she has a great moment when dusk is being given her kingdom come trip around the dc universe as a a spirit by the phantom stranger where you see her exhausted and she's just found out that okay so we're not all gonna freeze to death in fact the sun is gonna try to basically reject the sun eater and is gonna nova and destroy everything that's great So what am I going to do? I'm going to call my dad, tell him I love him, and then get back to work. It's a really good moment for Barbara. 
and Clark had something very similar, uh, and that he just he goes back to Kansas. He goes to to Simon Pa one one last time. Pa, you don't really have to worry about the wheat. So this did not have as much. For some reason, I was thinking this had. Uh, there's no Bruce and Luther working together because I remember Luther plays such a big part in the fight against, um, you know, the planning. And this is this is the first time I remember in my chronology of reading comics because I was still a kid when this came out of like Luther having common cause and working with the heroes, which, you know, is a trope that, you know, we'll see come up many, many times. I think probably sticks the most in New 52 because they even make him a Justice League member for some stupid ass reason after that. Yeah, there was there, there wasn't Bruce and Lex in here. Um, and we really, for most of it, we get more Batman on the cover than we do inside the book. You have the one scene, the kind of questionable, I don't even know what to think of it scene with Vandal Savage. Just Vandal Savage being real, real date rapey. And then you get the end. And Batman comes in hard. It felt like someone had to be the cynical, no, fuck that guy character. And they just figured it would be Bruce. And I'm not sure how I... Like, Hal sacrifices himself to save the planet Earth. And Bruce is like, yeah, no, but still, fuck that guy. And that is Bruce's character arc with Hal Jordan for the next decade, nearly. He is that way with Hal through the first year of his returning Green Lantern. And only after they have a team-up issue do the two of them come to some sort of peace. Except there's a two-issue prestige format JLA Spectre miniseries where it ends with the two of them shaking hands. That was supposed to be canon and nobody paid attention to. Or at least Jeff Johns didn't because it didn't suit his need to have Hal Jordan punch Batman in the face because Hal Jordan is awesome, according to Jeff Johns. Uh, tracks. There is the one interaction between Bruce and Lex after Green Lantern is supposed to fly Luthor's force fields to the sun and Kyle disappears because Hal summons him and then... Bruce like, well, maybe we should use Luthor's first choice to fly it. Luthor. And Luthor like practically shits his face like, no, not going to be me. Hell no. I, I have to live. Why am I doing this if not for me to live specifically? Which is so Luthor. If I'm not going to live, screw all you guys. And, yeah. and that goes back to your point, Josh, talking about Luthor working with the heroes. It's a very good demonstration of he might work with them but he should never be one of them because he Luther never does anything that isn't for himself. Luthor is a textbook narcissist. If there's anyone who is a better example of there is no real person in the world, except for me, except for maybe Victor Von Doom. I, I can't think of one that nobody matters, but me. I like how Lex is written. And Isol had been, he'd written a bunch of Superman. He'd been writing, he'd written uh, adventures. Adventures. Yeah, with Eminem? Because it was Tom Grummet, and then Eminem did one of the Superman books for a while. 
I don't remember. I mean, this is this is early. Eminent hasn't evolved into his final form yet because, I mean, some of his later stuff and some of the things he does in the X Men and Marvel line wise are fuck are just stunning. But solid, solid early work by Eminent here. Don't remember if Eminent was on Adventures. I do. I just remember it's Adventures because Kessel was Superboy. Yeah, I'm pretty sure then that it was Eminent on Adventures. Because, I mean, Jurgens and Jurgens penciled, and then there were, I think it was Ron Friends on Superman when Jurgens was just writing it. And it was Wheezy and Bogdanov on mm-hmm. Man, of, Man Steel. of Steel. And Action, Geis, and then Barry Kitson. And then I think Kitson left to do Azrael. And I don't think it was Eminem on action i think it was i don't remember who it was now the more thinking about it i'm pretty sure it was adventures that he was on which makes sense to have him working with the writer he had been working on that book with here i mean in terms of the story on this one it's probably the tightest narrative start to finish because underworld unleashed doesn't stick the landing um you know there's good foreshadowing um you know with how the the parallax emerald knight issue is i think appropriately purple and poetic you know it it is telling a eulogy as you're you know you're watching him kind of make the decision and tie up loose ends it's a a love letter to you know a character that wasn't anymore um and it had never tried to paint back over and make him anything he wasn't it took it consistently said flaws and all he did all the bad things own it now he's gonna do a good one um and i i like that because jeff john sure shit wouldn't have written it that way yeah i I mean it's i i think it it holds pretty well as a story i think the most questionable thing i had of it was really the batman take which i just left feeling like they were looking around the room. Someone needs to voice this opinion. Who can we who can we give it to? Who's gonna be the biggest jerk in the room? Because Ollie I, was dead. Yeah. I will say there's one panel that bugged the shit out of me. And it's in issue three. And this is just one of these things where it's a, it's a pet peeve. It's not even a pet peeve. It's a a problem we see in modern comics. But there's the page after Etrigan. It's the page after the Pope page where Etrigan offers, you know, yeah, we'll we'll fix the earth. We'll fix the sun if if the whole world gives up their souls. But the next page is Luthor giving a press conference. And Josh, do you have the singles? I'd be curious if you... Beautiful. I'm here. Okay, go to the if you go to that panel, the, the page, and you get to the very bottom of the page, the next to the last panel, you have a reporter interviewing Lex. And you probably don't know who well, you don't know who the character of Ron Troop is, do you? I did not, but I just read it as trope, and I was like, ah, that's no. a little on the nose. Ron Troop, he's another member of the, the Daily Planet staff. He was a younger reporter. And he, you know, kind of graduates up and becomes a you know, major member of the Delhi Planet staff. Dates uh, Lucy Lane for a while, Lois's sister. 
but Ron is a character of color. He is completely whitewashed in this panel. Yes. Just he is the same skin pigment as Lex Luthor. And he is a black man. And it's since it is something that we so see as a problem in comics now, just seeing that panel threw me out. And I'm wondering if it was the digital transfer or if, yep, he is still a white man in the original comic too. That's not good. Yeah, he's actually a lighter shade of Caucasian uh, on page six of the floppy than Luther is. I didn't recognize that, like, there's no name on who it is. Is there? Do they uh, call Luthor's it by name? As it happens, Mr. Troop, recent data shows. Right. Luthor... I see. I didn't make the connection. Damn. No, that's a bad. Yeah. And that's just sloppy. That's a colorist who doesn't know who the character is and just defaulted to making him Caucasian. But if you know your Superman comics, that's no good at all. Yeah, I, I love that those couple of pages before where Etrigan just takes over all of the TVs and is like, hey, guess what? Y'all can come to where it's warm when you die and we'll fix the earth now. I do love, and I, I don't know, I'd love to ask Kessel or Eminem who did that, if it was in the script or if Eminem just, you know, kind of ad-libbed. But the Pope just kind of hand-waving off, like, Shh, I want to hear what he has to say while the deaf, while Etrigan's making his offer. is a great panel. It is a, I, it is a, I think we should hear the devil out. Never hurts. Why not? This... What Jesus would want. Yeah, Jesus listened to the devil and said, no, we, we, <laughs> we should give everyone else the shot. But yeah, you're absolutely right, Josh. There is that panel of Mr. Freeze in the underworld unleashed armor. And it's like, he doesn't need the armor. The world is frozen. He should be, especially if he has cold powers of his own. Why is he even need the suit? I was thinking of digging out afterwards the, I think it's two issues. That's the underworld unleashed is a two issue one with Mr. Freeze. The, if, in the final night crossovers to see if we got anything better from freeze. Cause I don't remember the final night issue. I remember the final night issues from like the flash and some other titles. I don't remember it from the bat books off the top of my head. And the Batman issue I'm pretty sure is man bat. Cause it's, it's Kelly Jones gets to draw man bat. How are none of yeah, I mean, and look, I'm not complaining about that, but how are none of y'all giving us like freeze walking down the middle of the street in his fucking bathrobe? Iced coffee, anyone? Quite comfortable. I want him like, yeah, I want him like walking around outside with no suit and the polar bears following him like in Sub Zero. Yes. This boxer, this is a balmy day for him. I mean, and this sets up. Ollie's resurrection you get that one page in the parallax one shot where you see Hal at Oliver's grave and then you see that from another angle in the final issue of the Connor Hawk series yep and then uh, that's what Kevin Smith uses he uses the scene of Bruce and Clark talking I think in final night number one 
no, two. It's earlier on. It it doesn't kind of timeline up with when Kyle goes and gets Hal, but he uses that scene because he's got to pull it off of Clark's cape. Yeah. But There's yeah, some no. Batman. Y'all could do Quiver one day. Batman shows up in Quiver. Abs- yeah, you're absolutely right. That when we need to do uh, Kevin Smith again, we'll do Onomatopoeia, Quiver, <laughs> and something else. There's got to be something somewhere. How? He did a short in Detective 1000, didn't he? Yes. Yes, he did. There you go. Right, the one about the gun. The one about the gun. Yeah. I, I like this story. Yeah, it is by far the most consistent of the three tonight, from A to B to C. It tells its story, it does it organically, and the art is really consistent, as is the story, versus Zero Hour, where the art is consistent, but the story is just all over the friggin' place. An underworld that doesn't stick the landing with the art especially, but the final issue also misses some story beats. I like just from my own retrospect that, you know, as a kid, I thought this was I I liked this. I liked all of them because, I mean, as a kid, you just you like all of them. But I thought this was like the least amazing because it definitely it's the smaller stakes and not really interesting. like it felt like the least, you know, impactful. But then as an adult, I, I definitely those the smaller stories quieter moments you know going through these three in a row yeah i think this is probably the most solid start to finish i definitely enjoyed the first two issues of underworld unleashed but it didn't stick the landing this gave us more human moments and was a more tightly focused and consistent story and these are, are flanked by two of my least favorite of the DC events because before Zero Hour is War of the Gods, which was just a mess because store issues didn't come out on time. And it was one of the ones where each crossover was numbered along with the issues. So it was like War of the Gods number one was one. Then some crossover was numbered as two. Then I remembered like Superman Man of Steel was number three. But some of the issues didn't come out on time. So you couldn't read them in the order that they were intended. And then after this, after Final Night is Genesis, which is a lot of New Gods stuff and has very little Batman. And again, it had like, you needed to read the issue of Jack Kirby's Fourth World in the middle of it, or you did not get what was going on. And it was... Like, okay, all the heroes' powers are a mess and everyone is facing existential ennui because nothing makes for a better superhero story than characters sitting around questioning their existence. Ah, of course. As I said, as we were getting ready for the show, I know a lot of people don't really care for Hal Jordan. After tonight, I've, I understand them a little bit more. I, I would have been Batman in the story. I would have been... How I'm not going to forget. Fuck off. Let's be fair. We have so many more interesting Green Lanterns. And and two, there's somewhere in the back of Bruce's brain that was like, I should have been on that ship. Should have been me. I wish Eminem has. I don't know if Eminem has really drawn any 
real Batman. And just judging by the way he draws Batman, I would have liked to have seen Stuart Eminem really do a Batman story because I like the way he draws Batman in here. Oh, wow. He did both. He did do adventures, but he also did action. Because that that uh, lockbox up there is never wrong. So there you go. Yeah. And he he did some Legion. But yeah, looking at like, yeah, I mean, oh, wow. He did. I forgot. I guess I wasn't thinking about it. He did uh, a secret identity. The Superman Elseworlds with Kurt Busiek. Yes. That's a good one. But yeah, you look at his DC work is almost exclusively Superman or the Legion. So he he fits this story particularly well. But I would have loved to see him do a Batman miniseries or a world's finest miniseries. And he would be good on world's finest now. Yeah, if uh, Laura needs a a couple issues off, let let Eminem do a couple issues on that book. That would be that would be a solid choice. I think I'm good. I'm good. So that means it's time to put the final night on the big board. All right. So I think we are moving up from again. This is I think this is the the best of the night. So if Underworld is at 125, I'm thinking, again, minimal Batman. So I'm not sure how high it it can really go, but. I'm not saying up here, but I think the ceiling would be something like Hush at 65. I I mean, I I would say my ceiling is even a little, is is Nightfall Part 2. 75. Not that, again, I don't think it actually goes that high, but I don't think it could go higher than that. I don't know. I think we're a little lower than that. I wasn't going that high. I was going to question you in the 90s, but... Yeah, I, I think 80s or 90s, like low, high 80s, somewhere in the 90s. Because I think 80, Josh, being that Josh is here, 87 is Impulse 50. And I think I would read Impulse 50 again. Impulse 50 is so fun and yet does... Imp- Impulse 50 is better than this. Yeah. Impulse 50 tells a a great story that has great character beats for both Batman and Joker. Doomsday Book's better than this. Yes. I love Doomsday Book. Consequences, probably better. Okay. So here's the one I was originally going to throw out to you Killing Joke. Better. By rule. I mean, Killing Joke is inarguably a more important Batman story, but yes, but Killing Joke is this is better. So problematic for Killing Joke is a story where I wish you could take that the concept that that you know Joker tries to break Jim Gordon by giving him the one bad day to prove that you could do it to anyone. Strip out all the problematic Barbara stuff and all the weird psychosexual stuff and redo that story in a way that doesn't just make you cringe now. Yeah, the only problematic thing about this was that in one panel, a uh, colorist didn't know who Ron Troop was. Yeah. Which also, for the record, when we talk about this being an issue that we're still dealing with today, 
in the last few years, we covered on X's for podcast whole ass issues of X-Men comics where Storm was fucking colored in like the same shade as Kitty Pride. Nobody can figure can remember that Sunspot is supposed to be Sunspot has been every fucking shade on the Home Depot color wheel. And Monet too. Yeah. Birdo's was it Birdo's father is black and his mother is Brazilian. Or is she? I, she's lighter skin than his father is darker skin. He's he was originally drawn as in those early New Mutants as very dark. In the skin. New Mutants graphic novel, he's he's picked on and called slurs, and it's explicit because he's dark skin and black. They hate him on the soccer team, and they're bullying him because he's dating a white girl, and he's dark. Yeah, and, and those are main characters in a book. This is one panel where, again, it just was like, okay, the colorist did not know who this guy was. Yeah, this wasn't a whitewashing. This was a who's run troop. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, I'm just defaulting to my basic color palette because I don't know any better. All right, so if we're saying above killing joke. What do you think about 93? I would want to go one lower. I'd want to go 94. I, I like fear for sale more. Okay. That, that that scarecrow. Because right now, consequences from last episode is in between Doomsday Book and Fear for Sale. But I just love that, you know, Bruce Wayne's greatest fear is that Jason Todd died. Oops. So wah, wah. below Fear for Sale, but above Wonder Woman 77. Yes. That there we right. go. New 94. All right. Josh, thank you as ever for coming on the show. Uh, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel. That's Asleep at the W-E-I-L. Uh, next week, Dan Grote asked us to cover stories featuring the cousin Oliver of the Bat family, Batmite. So, yeah, it's that time. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. Jen, come on. Our very own Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bye Bad Two Bucks, can't wait to have you back on, Tim Rooney and Giorgio Sergioli for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Devon. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>